So hello everyone and welcome to the second podcast from the International Society of Blood Transfusion, Transfusion Practitioners Group. I'm Rachel Moss and I'm a member of the group along with my colleague Claire who will introduce herself in a moment. Today in our podcast we will be interviewing two eminent transfusion medicine specialists who have worked closely with the transfusion practitioners for many years now and they're going to discuss how transfusion practitioners make a difference. If you're not sure what transfusion practitioners are, you may want to go back and listen to our very first podcast about what is a transfusion practitioner. The International Society of Blood Transfusion, ISBT, is a global community of professionals sharing knowledge to enhance transfusion practice and blood management. The Society does this by providing opportunities in advancing knowledge and education and by advocacy for the welfare of blood donors and patients. ISBT has many working groups that focus on specific topics or areas of practice, and one of those is the Transfusion Practitioner subgroup. So Claire will introduce herself, and after that, I would like our guests to introduce themselves. So Claire. So, uh, hi, my name is Claire O'Reilly. I am the Transfusion Safety Nurse Clinician for British Columbia's uh, Children's and Women's Hospital. Um, but in a way of connecting myself with, uh, with the people on our podcast today, I will point out I'm very proud to say I am an NHS trained nurse. <laughs> I trained um, my general training and my children's training, London and Birmingham. And I'd also like to point out the Australian connection is that I did the transfusion practitioner course some years back. And oh my gosh, I just absolutely love doing that course. So um, that I think kind of ties us in nicely to show <laughs> ISBT is truly international and um, the transfusion practitioner role is truly international. Um, Erica, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Thank you, Rachel, and hello, everyone. I'm Erica Wood. I'm a haematologist from Melbourne, Australia. I work in clinical and laboratory practice and uh, research, um, and I'm the current president of ISBT. Shubhat. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, a real pleasure to be here. So I'm a haematologist. Um, uh, I start, I've been a consultant haematologist for several years. Initially started off looking after to a spectrum of hematology patients, hemato-oncology, hemoglobinopathy, hemostasis, but um, then moving on to transfusion medicine with a joint post at Bart's Health, which is a large trust in London, and also with NHS Blood and Transplant, which is the blood um, service in England. Um, uh, and you know, great to have been involved in ISBT as previous co-chair of the Clinical Transfusion Working Party, and I completed a stint as regional director for Europe. And it's brilliant to be here today. Brilliant, thank you both. So Claire is now gonna be our question monster and we'll talk through with both Schubert and Erica, the role of the transfusion practitioner and the difference it's made in their professional life. And then at the end of our short podcast, we will round up. So over to you, Claire. Okay, thank you, Rachel. So um, we know that there are transfusion practitioners in your country. Um, and what I'd just like you to ask is if you could just share how long the role has been in place. Erica, would you like to go first? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in Australia and New Zealand for about 20 years, uh, in Australia, we started with a pilot uh, in, in our 
in our state um, where we had just two hospitals and two uh, transfusion nurses. Uh, most of the transfusion practitioners in Australia are from a nursing background, but there are some from a medical laboratory science background. And uh, the role is now well established across Australia and New Zealand um, uh, in many uh, hospitals and also in uh, blood centre settings and possibly other settings as well. Um, great. So in the UK, I think it's fair to say that in the early 1990s, transfusion medicine generally was in the wilderness, so to speak. And, you know, there were serious concerns about transfusion safety and indeed efficiency. And at that time, we were concerned not just about the infections we sort of knew quite well, hepatitis HIV, but in the UK, we had the spectrum of variant CJD and we just didn't know where we were going. And so in 1996, the serious hazards of transfusion, the, the SHOT scheme, the UK Hemovigilance scheme was set up. And um, following this, we had uh, in 1998, a multidisciplinary se seminar and the Department of Health published the first Better Blood Transfusion Health Service Circular, which I think for the UK is pretty pivotal. And it's pivotal because one of the key recommendations of the time was the Hospital Transfusion Committee. Uh, they also urged participation in SHOT and to develop transfusion guidelines protocols. And this is when hospitals started to employ ATPs uh, to work with clinical and laboratory teams to support this work. So things sort of started off piecemeal, um, but then along came the second Better Blood Transfusion Initiative in 2002. Um, and by this stage, we now had the National Blood Transfusion Committee and the, the very strong recommendations here was that all hospitals should have TPs. And this is when the role really took off. So that's sort of the starting background, how this role started, I think, in the UK. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to ask you perhaps to describe a little bit of the role of the transfusion practitioners to the best of your knowledge in, in your countries. Um, and maybe Dr. Allard, you can go first this time. Um, okay, so I'm going to just sort of pick up from where I left off with my story. So we had uh, the second bed blood transfusion um, circular back in 2002. And then uh, this also, in addition to the TP role, stated that transfusion committees were not enough. You needed the more effective, smaller hospital transfusion team. And the transfusion practitioner was pivotal to the small team together with uh, the lab manager and a consultant leading for transfusion. And then this then segued nicely into uh, the third BBT initiative in 2007, and then patient blood management. So if you cast your mind back, this is when PBM was becoming an international initiative. So when TPs first started, uh, they were largely nurses, but from many different sort of clinical backgrounds. I mean, I think it's fair to say ITU, renal, pediatrics, um, and they worked full-time or part-time focusing on sort of essential activities, working as interface between the many different clinical teams and lab teams uh, with activities supporting safety of produce, such as guidelines, audit, education, and hemovigilance reporting. Uh, and the role has then continued to develop after that. Okay, and Professor Wood? 
Yes, and, and the experience in Australia has some similarities and some differences with the situation in the UK. We also had a national report uh, which uh, said that we needed to get our act together about how we practised in hospitals. And I think we all knew that, but it was very helpful to have someone articulate and summarise uh, the issues around clinical practice. So the safety of the blood products uh, was very high already in Australia, but the issue was really about how we use them. And so there was a report uh, published, uh, This the report was finally published in its final form in 2005 uh, by the Australian Council for Safety and Quality in Healthcare. And it made a number of the similar points to the better blood transfusion reports in the UK uh, around safety and quality of practice and uh, the importance of hemovigilance. And so we had, I think, uh, an important top-down uh, signal, but we also had a lot of energy and uh, desire for improvement from the individual hospital level and the blood services saying, how can we improve our practice? And so these things uh, uh, really went together. And then so the role um, as it has, and it certainly has evolved uh, over the years, it's a very diverse role and it does depend on, on the setting in which the person's working and of course their interests and, and background. And, and uh, as has been said, we've had people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, in hospitals, from um, internal medicine, surgery, hematology, renal emergency, et cetera. Uh, ICU. Uh, and we've also had some people who come into the roles, blood centre roles. And the roles are, I think there are some common elements in that these are really focused on quality and safety aspects. Um, uh, but uh, the roles are quite, uh, quite uh, diverse. Uh, and um, uh, they're a very important part of, of the hospital transfusion setting and uh, different people have uh, taken on different aspects according to the need in their institution. So in some places, there's been a huge focus on things like uh, getting policies and procedures in place. Uh, in other settings, it's been reinvigorating transfusion committees, um, uh, adverse event reporting, education, but most people do something of all these things and are a really important part of the uh, institutional transfusion team. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you both very much. I, I think that is uh, one of the strengths of the transfusion practitioner role is the ability to customize it to, to your health authority or your individual site <clears throat> so that you, I guess you, everybody's getting true value out of the role. So um, now we did have a question about triggers, but I actually think you both hit on that. So I'm going to, to move along. And then I'm, my next question is, and Dr. Per, uh, or Professor Wood will start with you, is how did you go about setting up the role? If it wasn't you, it's like, uh, how did others go about setting up this role? Yeah, so uh, I mentioned we started with a pilot and that pilot was supported by our state uh, Department of Health. And there in Australia, there are states and territories and they each have a Department of Health. And then there's also a federal 
uh, a Commonwealth level Department of Health, Health and we've had support at both of those levels over the last 20 years and that's been really important. In Victoria, where I'm from, we started with this pilot at two hospitals uh, for two or three years. And as we were doing that, we also developed uh, elements that could be rolled out to additional sites. Uh, but uh, I'm a big believer in doing a pilot when it's something you've done the first time. So you learn the, the kinds of things that you should do more of and, and less of. Uh, and how to do them. The pilot was successful uh, and I'm uh, also a big believer and, and this was very helpful in our case to have uh, uh, concrete reporting to explain what was happening uh, and what kinds of activities were being undertaken and how we could look at uh, progress and, and, and success. And so uh, we, we started with this uh, pilot uh, in the hospital setting. Uh, around the same time, we were also advocating for having similar roles, which at that time we did not have uh, in the blood centers, uh, saying, you know, there are lots of roles here for transfusion practitioners that could be very, very valuable, um, but we need to, uh, again, get support from the senior management and explain uh, what's being proposed and what we're uh, hoping to do and how we think this would add value. And so it can, can take, a t take a while to, to get that support, um, uh, and, and it did, but we were very uh, pleased uh, when we had our first uh, uh, teams in place in the hospitals and the blood uh, centres. And of course, Lindley Bilby was one of those very first people. Okay, and, and Dr. Allard? Um, okay, great. Um, I mean, I think certainly the Better Blood Transfusion Health Service circular back in the late 90s, early 2000, was really helpful in focusing on the needs for hospitals to develop such roles. It was pretty clear that there was a lot to be done in transfusion, but you know this couldn't be done as a part of anybody else's role where they didn't have time. So having dedicated individuals with the expertise and knowledge was pretty essential if we were to influence safe and appropriate use of blood. And then as these roles started to develop, I think it soon became apparent via audit and data collection that they were pivotal in promoting safe and appropriate use, and in fact were now resulting in a significant reduction in blood usage. And this was really, I mean, it's of course beneficial to patients, but financially, this actually signified really quite a lot, you know, large savings to hospitals. So, you know, so information such as this, I mean, you know, it, it was shared. And so hospitals started picking up on this and this actually supported business case, cases for development of this role. So uh, by now, of course, we, we also had the National Blood Transfusion Committee with regional transfusion committees and regional transfusion committees now sort of feeding into every single hospital transfusion committee. So you have this national framework with two-way sharing of information. And so that sort of also helped promote initiatives such as this, which are, of course, hugely beneficial to patients. And then as part of the Better Blood Transfusion initiatives, um, there were also quite a lot of supportive resources developed as part of a so-called Better Blood Transfusion Toolkit. So there were resources readily available uh, to hospitals and for example, generic JDs. So this really then helped individual hospitals to take 
this forward. Maybe thank, I thank could, you. oh, sorry. Yes, go ahead. Jump in there. Maybe I could pick up on uh, what Dr. Ella just said. I think until the advent of this role, things like uh, utilization and particularly a wastage were considered to be, or at least by default, because no one else was doing this work, were really in the in the domain of the transfusion laboratory scientists, and they were uh, held responsible for uh, inventory management and blood wastage. When of course a lot of the wastage or avoidable wastage is in fact in the clinical areas, and this has been a very important part of the work, collaborative work uh, in Australia and New Zealand, and I know in other countries where using the mechanism of the hospital transfusion committee, expecting reporting on blood utilization and wastage and that for that to be reviewed regularly. It really gives everybody a focus to say, um, we need to attack all these areas of avoidable wastage and having a resource, someone with dedicated time uh, from the clinical side to do this work um, and to support the transfusion laboratory scientists and to feel like a team uh, about tackling these kinds of issues has been so important. And we've, we've been very pleased in Australia that wastage of red cells, platelets, plasma, et cetera, has, has really improved uh, over this, this time. It takes time to show that things are improving. And it's also, it can be hard to show what is the driver specifically for the improvement, because in fact, many things are often happening concurrently. Mm. But having someone to coordinate this work with time in the week, as Dr. Allah was saying, was so important. And, and I, I totally agree with, with those comments. Thank you both so, uh, so much, because I, this is a question that comes to the TP group quite frequently about how to go about setting up the role. And I'm confident our listeners will, will find all of that information so helpful. Uh, leading on from that is uh, our next question, and Dr. Wood, perhaps you can go first, is uh, how is the TP role supported financially? Uh, it comes down to who's going to pay for this. Um, and I know it may differ uh, in jurisdiction, but um, any comments you have would be helpful. Yes, thank you. So in Australia, in the public system, uh, the uh, hospitals are run by the state health departments in the different states and territories. And the um, transfusion practitioner uh, roles are funded by those public hospitals for work in the public sector and the, the money comes to the hospitals through the health departments uh, for those roles. Uh, increasingly, there has been uptake of these roles in the private sector as well. Australia has quite a large private hospital system uh, and uh, the role has shown value for both uh, public and private hospitals. In the first few years, we were very pleased that the role was expanding but we were living hand to mouth every year uh, to have to uh, advocate every year for continuation of the role. And it took a number of years before this was just part of the furniture business as usual. And it was 
quite a, an anxious time because people would be getting to the end of 12 month contracts and really not sure if they had ongoing positions. And I'm pleased to say that uh, that, is now, that is now changed and the role is as, as recognized as valuable and, and as central as, for example, the role of the you know, diabetes nurse educator or other things that we couldn't imagine doing without uh, now. Infection control nurse, you know, these yeah. kinds of roles, uh, whether they're of nursing um, uh, orientation or not, they are the kinds of roles that we now recognise as being central to quality and safety. Dr. Allard? Uh, yeah, so of course in the UK we have the National Health Service, but here I'm going to just emphasise, of course, we've got um, different countries making up the UK. Um, and I, speaking sort of firstly, for England, which is where I am based. Um, so you have several hospitals and now they're called, there are many trusts. So trusts are basically a collection of hospitals within a large trust. The funding for these hospitals trust is through the NHS, but it's the budgets devolved to hospitals and trusts and some more so than others, they're called foundation hospitals. And then we of course also have the private hospitals and the within hospitals and trusts, uh, the TP role is funded within those budgets that they are provided. So you don't have a sort of a central pot of funding for transfusion practitioners. So for example, 200 hospitals grouped into 140 trusts or whatever, uh, they would each be responsible for uh, employment of the TP role. Um, uh, but in Scotland, for example, I think there's been a different model in where you, the NHS, there's been sort of centrally funded transfusion uh, practitioners. I think both models have their own advantages and possibly some may argue uh, some, uh, uh, you know, there's challenges as well. Uh, but I think uh, the, the important thing to, to recognize is whatever model of funding, it's the prominence that this role has received uh, across the whole, across all, all of the UK. And certainly uh, with successive surveys, we've shown a huge take up you know, and I think, in, for example, back in the early 2000s, you probably only have about 15, 20% or so with hospitals with transfusion practitioners, and then successive three yearly audits. I mean, you know, you're virtually up to every single hospital or trust having at least one practitioner and, and probably more. Um, and just to really sort of just add to that, I initially highlighted that many of these um, TPs were from nursing back backgrounds, but now, I would say um, a lot of them actually have a laboratory background. So it's the 50% nursing and 50% probably at least a laboratory background. Oh, thank, thank you very much. Again, the listeners will be really um, listening in for, for, for your information there. Um, the next question is, were there any surprises or unexpected positive effects out of creating the TP role? I guess, most people would have what they anticipate or what their goals were. Um, but was there anything that came out of it that perhaps you didn't anticipate, um, uh, Dr. Allard? Yeah, so I think um, sort of having grown up with the TP role, because remember I started off as a consultant in the, in the 1990s, 2000s. So initially, uh, you know, the, the TPs were, I think, and, and uh, Rachel will support, support me, they were very exclusive from a nursing background and I suppose maybe it's not a surprise but it was lovely just to see how laboratory based staff were increasingly attracted to these roles and I think whatever their background I think it was fantastic to 
see individuals showing some really strong leadership qualities. And I think what was also quite interesting to see, uh, and I think this is a positive effect, but certainly some of these individuals then use the TP role as a launch pad to move on to even more challenging development and leadership roles. And we've seen that sort of time and time again. It, it's all, always sort of sad when you see a good TP then move on, but gratifying when you see them moving to you know, really quite challenging, significant roles, which they, they might not have considered before. So I think that's hugely positive that the, the TP roles could helps develop people in all sorts of um, other ways. The other sort of positive thing really, I guess is, uh, you know, is the overall aim for all this in terms of how much we've been able to achieve in relation to transfusion safety, but also in terms of reduction of inappropriate use. And certainly um, in England, we've had a 36% reduction in the use of red cells from 1999 to 2019. And I think as um, Professor Wood implied, this is not just one single initiative, this is due to sort of partnership between lots of clinical teams, hospitals, uh, the blood service, uh, but you know, certainly in the UK, it's the both blood transfusion initiatives and then the PBM initiatives. But you know, our red cell issues, you know, we were at a high when we first started at 42.7 per thousand population, and we're now down to 24.6. But I think I think we all must acknowledge the pivotal role that the transfusion practitioner played in all this, and that is just hugely positive. Thank you so much. And um, Professor Wood? Look, I, I, I would agree with uh, everything that Dr. Allah's just sent and, uh, said. And, and I would say that, in a way, the, the role has been even more positive than I could have imagined. Uh, I, I was optimistic, hopeful, but cautious, uh, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And I think, you know, really what we have now is um, a strong sense of, you know, camaraderie and support. Well, this shouldn't be a surprise or an expected, you know, it's just such a thriving network of people to ask for advice uh, in addition to medical colleagues and transfusion laboratory scientists and management, you know, it's really a role that brings people together within an organization because they're connected uh, with everybody. Um, I, I think it's really strengthened um, uh, these connections. Uh, it, it, there's also a lot of, uh, you know, people really enjoy peer-to-peer -peer, uh, connections. So, you know, nurses enjoy talking to other nurses and they speak the same language and scientists and other scientists speak the same language. So having someone to do that kind of education, uh, speaking the same language and saying, I've been where you are is very, very powerful. And, and also, you know, there are so many important projects to work on together, which uh, prior to this role being in place, basically just had not been getting done because medical or scientific staff were really trying to stretch to do them with no allocated time. And then many of these um, project uh, type activities have become terrific educational or research opportunities and have led to wonderful posters or presentations or publications. And so um, these have been their own uh, development opportunities as, as uh, Dr. Allard said, people to take on more responsibility, but even things that maybe uh, many people listening might take for granted, like 
going to a conference to share your work and hear from other people is a very positive development, uh, often for people who haven't had those kinds of opportunities before. And it's really wonderful to see it happening, well, all around the world. Thank you very much. Um, and last question, um, Professor Wood, I'll let you kick off is, what advice do you have for our IB ISBT members and listeners who, who may be thinking about introducing this role? Well, um, it's easy to say just do it, but I really do mean it. You won't regret it. It is hard work. Uh, we've all experienced the uphill battle of getting other people interested in why this is important, why it's valued, uh, why it's valuable, and, and uh, how it would work in you know the institution where you're proposing it. But I can say from Australia that it's absolutely changed the way we practice transfusion in hospitals in Australia's, Australia and New Zealand. So my advice would be get other people involved to support you, both formal and informal champions, uh, mentors, sounding boards. Um, we've certainly learned from the experience of other people and, and that's been to our benefit. And we've also been able to share our experience. So I think doing it uh, as a team, even a small fledgling team, um, but uh, if you can do it within your own institution or across, institutions, it can make you feel a bit more supported. I said earlier, you know, documenting progress uh, is very helpful to show how things are progressing and to get buy-in from senior management. And, and I think also to understand that there's not only one way to do this. It's not a um, uh, it's not um, a single role. There's a variation depending on the need and, of course, the interests and expertise of the people involved. So develop something that works in your health system, in your institution, and uh, learn from what other people have done uh, and tailor it. But start start with a pilot if you if you think it would be valuable. It certainly was for us, but keep going. We didn't learn all of the lessons um, even in the first few years and everything has continued to evolve, but we've been very pleased with how it's worked out and uh, um, uh, I really encourage other people to, to get involved. Thank you. Dr. Allard? Um, great. Uh, those are fantastic tips from Professor Wood. And I would say, you know, there is now plentiful literature and experience about the TP role. And so, for example, the ISPT website has a wealth of publications and experience. And I, I would sort of, um, you know, echo what's just been said. And the role may have different emphasis in different clinical set settings. So I think it's important for you to define own local priorities. And, you know, by all means, think as big and, and or as small as you like, but, you know, but make a start. Uh, and local data is helpful in defining local needs. Um, the type of hospital, the clinical distance, the healthcare professionals involved, get some idea of about, you know, local blood usage data, highlight your own needs for guidelines, education, competency, et cetera, and hemovigilance reporting. Define what the role means for you, for your local hospital, what the priorities are. And then, then identify sort of people who can help you, you know, business managers, but Clinical champions, do you know what? I cannot emphasize enough the role of clinical champions. So for example, in the UK, I think clinicians using high volumes of blood, anesthetists, ITU colleagues, um, or, or not necessarily high volumes, but high risk areas, for example, obstetrics, neonatal, 
and get them to support you in development of that business case. And once you have that first transfusion practitioner, they can then support further initiatives and further development of the team. So wherever you start, big or small, just make a start. Thank you. Okay, I will hand you back to Rachel now to, to wrap up. Thank you, Claire. As a transfusion practitioner who's now been in post for 20 years, I feel like I've just gone down memory lane, starting somewhere circa 2002, bringing us nicely to 2022. Um, Dr. Allard, Professor Wood, thank you so much for your time. We really do appreciate it. And, uh, and hopefully those who are listening who are interested in transfusion practitioner role will just see not only the benefits, uh, we're all champions of it, which is why we're here, but just how diverse and some of the great outcomes. And I just really want to echo that there is not one size fits all. And there are things that perhaps Claire does in Vancouver that I might do in, in the UK that perhaps people that work with a professor would do that don't, are all slightly different, but they're all variations of a theme. And I think that's really important. So thank you for everybody for joining us today. If you have any feedback or questions, you can link in with us here by visiting the uh, ISBT website. And as we've already said, there is a huge amount of information on there, including things to support getting the transfusion practitioner role up and running. Do check out the Clinical Transfusion Working Party details. There's a lot of information on there about all things relating to clinical transfusion and our subgroup pages. We look forward to having you join us on our next episode, and we'll focus on some of the specific activities of the transfusion practitioner role, including some tips and resources to assist you. Until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.